Amen. As you're being seated, uh, I want to say welcome to Ignite. Really glad you could join us this morning. Before we open our Bibles and resume in the Gospel of Matthew, I want to draw your attention to a big point of celebration here at Ignite. Um, this time last year, uh, by your gracious prayer and giving, we planted another local church in Castleton, North Dakota, Harvest Plains Church. Uh, today, Harvest Plains Church is celebrating their one-year uh, birthday as a local church, and that's amazing. God's been faithful. Amen. Uh, they're taking on their first members today, and I was also told that they are holding their first baptism service at which five new believers are being baptized. Isn't that amazing? The church doesn't fail. The kingdom of God does not retreat in the midst of darkness. Christ said he will build his church, and man, Harvest Plains is an example of that. So uh, when you think about it, throughout the week, be praying for them. Uh, this is an exciting uh, Sunday and exciting week in the life of Christ's church. Amen? Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. We're covering a lot of scripture today. Pray for me. I have a lot of notes. Um, but Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, uh, we're taking a few years to study the gospel of Matthew together as a church. The word gospel means good news. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're saying the life ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is good news. That's what we mean by the gospel. And the uh, gospel means good news, these eyewitness accounts um, we have four of them in our Bibles. They, they're eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus. They're eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew's gospel focuses on the theme that Jesus is the kingly Messiah. The word Messiah means savior or deliverer. Matthew focuses on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of human history. Literally thousands of years awaited the arrival of Jesus, and Matthew, his gospel, focuses on the fact that Jesus fulfills history. He came as the Savior of the world. Matthew's gospel bears witness to this, and this fall we are looking at chapters 10 through 12 of Matthew's gospel. We're going to see in these three chapters that Jesus' message and Jesus' kingdom is met with great opposition in the world. We're going to see different responses to Jesus, his ministry, and his apostles, his sent ones, his followers. Really, Matthew 10 through 12 records the different responses people had and even today continue to have to the person and work of Jesus. Last week, we saw in the first 25 verses of Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus called his 12 disciples. He called them, he selected them, and then he sent them. In many ways, Matthew 10 is an answer to a prayer Jesus prayed at the end of Matthew chapter 9. What Jesus said in Matthew 9, he prayed to the Father. Um, uh, he said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Jesus tells his disciples and he prays that God would raise up workers to go out and share the gospel. And then what happens in Matthew 10? God is faithful. He raises up workers to be sent into the harvest. And so Matthew 10 is an answer to Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 9. He calls and commissions his apostles to proclaim the gospel. 
And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, especially chapters 10 through 12, as the opposition to Jesus and his ministry starts to arise and increase and become more hostile, you and I need to know that today the world still hates Christ. The world hates the gospel. The gospel's offensive. The church is offensive. The gospel's not palatable to the world. It's not acceptable. It's not credible. It's looked at as foolishness, as stupid to the world. I'm not very cultured. You can ask my wife about that. Um, But I do know that we have many celebrities that convert to the faith in our culture. And we say, praise God. Like, that's amazing. But what I, say, what I hear said a lot when these celebrities convert to Christianity is it's kind of this notion that believers think, well, maybe now that this popular celebrity in our culture converted to Christianity, that maybe our religion will be more widely accepted now. Or maybe our message won't be quite as offensive. It'll be a little more palatable to the world because we have a prominent name representing us. Can I just say that that's not true? The gospel is always offensive when it's rightly taught. Man, the person of Jesus always offends when rightly proclaimed. This is the truth of the gospel. It's always hated by the world, and those who proclaim the message of the gospel are also often hated for it. The gospel is costly, and so Jesus, knowing this, prepares his disciples in Matthew 10 for the great persecution that is to come. In our passage today, Matthew 10, verses 26 through 42, Jesus commissions the 12 to proclaim the gospel throughout the region of Palestine. It's the Arabian Peninsula in modern-day geography. Before sending them, here's what we're going to look at. He gives his apostles two commands and one promise. He gives his apostles two commands and one promise. And here's the central idea we're unpacking today. Christ calls his people to proclaim the gospel without fear and without compromise. Christ calls his people to proclaim the gospel without fear and without compromise. Look with me at the first command Jesus gives in verses 26 through 33. The first command is this, do not fear. This is good news. How many of you need to hear this today? Do not fear. Jesus addresses our hearts. Verse 26, read with me. So have no fear of them, that is, men. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God the Father, not Satan, in view. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. The first command, do not Fear. Three times in this passage, Jesus gives the explicit command, do not fear. Why? Well, because in the verses we looked at last week, Jesus just promised. He gave his 
unfailing word to the disciples that you will be hated when I send you out to preach the gospel. Our, our culture doesn't like the gospel. The culture in Jesus' time did not like the gospel. It was offensive to them. And so he promises disciples you will receive great persecution. Extreme persecution awaited Jesus' people. Jesus used the analogy in verse 16 of chapter 10 that his apostles are like sheep in the midst of wolves. They will be harmed for the sake of the gospel. Or he says in chapter 10, verse 17, to his apostles, you will be flogged, beaten, whipped in the synagogues. Understand that Jesus' 12 disciples, as he's giving the marching orders for the kingdom, these 12 disciples are Jews. And used to, they would go to the synagogue, the Jewish house of worship, as a place of comfort, as a place of worship, as a place to read the word with God's people. And what's Jesus saying now? Because of my gospel, because of your allegiance to me, you're going to be flogged in the synagogues. The synagogues won't even be a safe place for you because of my name. Serious persecution awaited them. And as you can imagine, they had reason to be fearful. But Jesus in these verses uh, gives the apostles three reasons not to fear the world as they proclaim the gospel. We're going to look at these three reasons this morning. First reason in verses 26 through 27 is this. God will vindicate or show to be right his people. God will vindicate his people. He says it in verse 26. So have no fear of them for or because nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What Jesus is saying here is, as the apostles go out, they will be persecuted. Their character will be dragged through the mud. They will be falsely accused and ridiculed. But Jesus says this injustice that the apostles experience will not be permanent. It will not endure forever. Why? Because Jesus says, nothing is covered that will not be revealed. He says, nothing is hidden that will not be known. What Jesus is saying is, God renders the final verdict. Look, as followers of Jesus, when people falsely accuse us, when people hate us because of our gospel, when people malign our character and speak lies concerning us and lies concerning the church, you need to know that that's not the final word. Our God is a judge who always renders a true and good verdict. And on that day, the final judgment of all people, the living and the dead, all false words spoken against Christ's church will be brought into the light. And God will make right all that is wrong in the world. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. God will vindicate, prove to be right his people. The second reason uh, the apostles were not to fear is this, verse 28. God is sovereign over, he rules over his creation. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is Jesus saying? He's saying essentially that we fear the wrong things. 
we fear the wrong things. First part of verse 28, Jesus says, don't fear men. He says the worst thing they can do to you is harm your body physically. They have no power over your soul. They have no power over your eternity. Don't fear them, rather fear God who is God over both body and soul. This is a statement of God's sovereignty, his control, his, his kingship over the world. Like I said, we fear the wrong things. I'm guilty of this. I'm sure if you examine your hearts, you can see this. We spend so much time fearing people that ultimately have no power. In fact, we even spend time fearing Satan, who is never referred to as the king in Scripture. He's only called the prince. He's on God's leash. We're never told to fear Satan. We're told to be aware of his tactics and his schemes. We fear the wrong things. And when we fear man, when we fear the enemies of God... We actually, in so doing, make light of God, who has all power, who has all authority, and who is sovereign over his people. So Jesus says, do not fear because God is sovereign over his creation. And finally, verses 29 through 31, we see the loving care God has for his people. The third reason, God is a father who cares for his people. Jesus uses this example, are not two sparrows, two birds, Sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of you men are praying that hair would just grow so you can number that. Even the hairs of your head, however few they might be, they're numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. Here's the great truth of the Christian faith. God is great. He is sovereign. He is the all-powerful king who is moving history toward a divine and glorious end. But God is also good. God is a father. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. In the Old Testament, which is about two-thirds of your Bible... God is referred to as Father two, maybe three times. In the New Testament, just in the four Gospels alone, God is referred to as Father more than 100 times. What do you think that's trying to communicate about the nature and character of our God? He's a Father who cares for you. He's a Father who cares for his people. That's what makes Christianity distinct from literally every world religion. God is not only sovereign to do what he intends to do, but he is good in doing it. God loves the people whom he is sovereign over. God is great and God is good. So do not fear. Do not fear. God will vindicate you. God will vindicate his church. Do not fear. God is sovereign over his creation. And do not fear. God is a father who loves his people and cares for his people. Isn't that good news? 
The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, he would have been here in Matthew 10 receiving these marching orders, by the way. He wrote the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and the book of Revelation in your Bibles. But John says in 1 John 3, 1, what love is this that we could be called children of God? We have a Father who cares for us, and we are not to fear because of that. And then Jesus wraps up this section in verses 32 and 33 by bringing an eternal perspective into this command. Okay, Um, The command, do not fear, has eternal ramifications and significance. Here's what Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying there will be two types of professing disciples, two types of followers of Jesus, two types of people in this room today. There will be those who fear God rather than man, this is good And there will be those who fear man rather than God. Here's what I've found. Fear of man will always lead to an eventual eventual denial of Christ. I need to say that again. That was a mess. Fear of man will always lead to an eventual denial of Christ. As I follow Jesus and walk with him, uh, the longer I do that, unfortunately, the longer my list becomes of people in my life that, because of fear of man, reject Christ. Fear of man always leads to an eventual denial of Christ. And Jesus brings an eternal perspective into this command. He says, do not fear. If you fear man, you will reject me, and I will therefore reject you. This is weighty, and this is serious. But it's true words from Jesus. First command, do not fear. We look now to the second command that Jesus gives his apostles. In verses 34 through 39, Jesus commands his apostles, do not compromise. Do not compromise. Read with me 34 through 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are difficult words, but here's the central truth. Jesus divides. Jesus divides. Look at the word Jesus uses to describe his ministry in verse 34. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. The ministry of Jesus divides. The ministry of Jesus creates separation. The ministry of Jesus cuts off from the world. The ministry of Jesus divides. And so in these verses, Jesus reminds his apostle that their message, the gospel, will create division when they proclaim it. And when the gospel divides... God's people are going to be tempted to forsake Christ for three things. This is what Jesus addresses in verses 35 through 39. 
I want to draw your attention to the three things that God's people will be tempted to forsake. Not if, but when the gospel brings division to even our closest relationships. First thing we'll be tempted to forsake is uh, we'll be tempted to forsake Christ for our, for our family. You know, the ministry of Christ will cause division even in the family. Read verses 35 through 37 again. I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is a difficult truth, but it's truth nonetheless. The ministry of Christ will cause division in the family. Maybe some of you have experienced this. When someone in your family believes and another person rejects, it creates hostility and division because the gospel is exclusive. It's offensive. I remember years back when I was uh, preaching from the Gospel of John on the work of the cross. It was a very clear gospel presentation of the finished work of Jesus. Um, I had a young lady come up to me after who was very moved by the truths of Jesus. Uh, She was from the Middle East and grew up with a Muslim background. And she said, Pastor, I... I want to believe this, this is good news, but I don't know what my family's going to think. Uh, converting to Christianity, especially in the Middle East, often is, at worst, a death sentence, and maybe at best, exclusion from your family unit. The gospel divides in the family. These are the devastating effects of sin, I think. The very family that God designed for oneness and for flourishing, the enemy uses to pit brother against daughter and son because one rejects the gospel, one receives the gospel, and now they are divided. Jesus brings division in the family. So what will it be for you today? If faced with the decision, will it be Christ or your family? That's what Jesus calls us to decide between. Verse 38, we'll be tempted to forsake Christ for comfort. We'll be tempted to forsake Christ for comfort. Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Discipleship is a call to suffer for the cause of Christ. His apostles knew this. The church today needs to know this. A gospel that says God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and blessed is no gospel of Christ at all because we serve a king, Jesus, who in fact suffered, was poor, and became a curse for us on the cross. I know this is heavy, but this is, this is the truth of Jesus and his message. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor theologian in Nazi Germany. 
And I was reading about him this spring. And all throughout his life, he would speak of the fact that one day he realizes he might need to die under Hitler's regime because he's holding to the true gospel. Eventually that did come to pass. Bonhoeffer, not even 40 years old, died at Flossenburg concentration camp. From direct order of Hitler himself, he was hanged. One week later, the Allies liberated the concentration camp. Three weeks later, Hitler committed suicide. Bonhoeffer was martyred for the gospel under Hitler's regime. But here's what's interesting. All throughout Bonhoeffer's life, you can read about it literally in the decades leading up to this event. Anytime he spoke of martyrdom, dying for the gospel, he spoke of it in terms of the grace of martyrdom. Bonhoeffer saw dying for the gospel as a gift of grace, as an act of allegiance to Jesus. I know this is difficult, but this is true. Jesus calls us to suffer and maybe even die for the sake of the gospel. These are the words he gives his apostles. These are the words he gives his church. So what will it be for you, Christ or comfort? And lastly, we'll be tempted, verse 39, to forsake Christ for self. This is a popular saying. It's a beautiful saying. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This saying is found in all four gospels and in a couple of them more than once. What's the meaning? Jesus is saying discipleship is meant to reorient and redefine even our very understanding of life itself. The world has its idea of the good life. You can read about it in People magazine. You can see it on the news. But Jesus also has his idea of the good life. You can read about that in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls us to forsake ourselves, forsake and reorient our very understanding of the good life, to find our lives in Christ. So what will it be for you, Christ or life itself? Jesus calls his followers to radical obedience. He calls his followers to serious discipleship. There's no room for compromise. There's no way around these truths. As I was praying for you this week, I was praying that we'd be a church that would not dare compromise the gospel, not dare compromise our discipleship when our family turns against us when life becomes uncomfortable and when maybe, even maybe, we are called to lose our life for the sake of the gospel. Church, don't compromise. God has given us the grace of one another, the gift of the church to strengthen our faith in times of difficulty. And this is why we're in Groups. We don't just talk about groups as some ministry program to get plugged into so we can boast a high attendance number. It's because we are in a war and temptations to reject Christ are real. Man, temptations to abandon the gospel are real. And so Christ's prayer for you is that you would not compromise the gospel. I'm reminded of John chapter 6, where Jesus gives another one of his popular uh, difficult teachings. 
We're told that the crowds left Jesus in that moment. These words are too hard, they said. And then Jesus turned to his 12 disciples, the ones to whom he's speaking in Matthew 10. And he turns to them and says, look at the crowds, they're leaving. Do you want to leave as well? And Peter speaks up and says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. These are difficult words, but there is no life in any other words. These are difficult truths, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So we're called to proclaim this gospel without fear and without compromise. As we conclude, I want to focus our attention on the last three verses. Chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. Here's the promise. Remember, Jesus gave his disciples two commands, don't fear, don't compromise, and a promise. This is the promise, and it's a good promise. The promise is this, there will be those who believe the gospel. There will be those who believe the gospel. Look with me at verse 40. These first two words, whoever receives, whoever receives, implied in this statement is that there will be some, whoever they are, who believe the gospel you preach. The ministry of Christ does not fail. The gospel does not fail. There will be those who persecute us, yes. There will be those that abandon us and leave us, yes. But there will be those when they hear the gospel. Their hearts are transformed. Their minds are changed. And they cling to the person of Jesus, rejecting their sin and believing in Christ. Jesus promises this. There will be those who believe. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this similar truth in different words. He said, I have other sheep, people that are not of this fold. In other words, there are people who have not yet believed. Jesus goes on to say, I must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus doesn't fail. There will be those who believe. In John chapter 11, Jesus' ministry is described as gathering into one the children of God who are scattered abroad the world. And in Revelation 5, John the Apostle sees a vision into the unseen realm and he sees the end of the age where a multitude that no man could count from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation are worshiping King Jesus. Why am I sharing this with you? Because there are people who have not yet heard the gospel who when they hear it will believe. Jesus will make sure of it. What's the reward? There's a reward for those who proclaim the gospel. And the reward is simply the, the, the joy of participating in someone else's salvation. Jesus goes on to list um, those who receive a prophet will receive a prophet's reward and a righteous person and even a little child. Uh, these are the proclaimers of the gospel. It's not just reserved for pastors. It wasn't just reserved for the 12 apostles. Uh, all of God's people are called to proclaim the gospel to all people without distinction. 
and our reward is the joy of participating in someone else's salvation. Then there'll be the reward for those who believe the gospel. There will be those who believe, and the reward is salvation in Christ. Or to borrow from the language you looked at already, the reward for those who believe the gospel, as Matthew 10, 32 says, is they will be acknowledged before the Father in heaven by their Lord, Jesus Christ. Grasp the ramifications of this with me for one moment. There are those who will believe the gospel. And when they believe, they will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and works and false religion to the kingdom of God and his beloved son. And on that day, when they stand before the judge and creator of the world, as sinners redeemed by Christ, the Father defers judgment to the Son, and the Son will say, He's with me. He's acquitted. That's my son. That's my daughter. I stand with this believer because they're in me and I in them. This is the reward of salvation for those who believe. So Christ calls his people to proclaim the gospel without fear and without compromise. Two simple points of response today, and we're going to move toward a time of prayer here in just one moment, but two points of response. The first is this, there is a reward for those who proclaim the gospel. The church is called to proclaim the gospel without fear and without compromise. If you are in here today as a follower of Jesus, you have a gift inside of you that is the gospel that needs to get out to a dying world. You might be rejected, you might be ridiculed, you might be persecuted, but God has people together. God has people who will believe, and he commissions us to do that. Proclaim the gospel without fear this week. And there's great reward, lastly, for those who believe the gospel. We talked about that in detail a moment ago. Those who believe. What is the gospel? Very simply this. Professing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus lived the life you could not live, perfect under the law. Jesus died the death that you deserve to die, a sinner on the cross. He died in your place, perfect, sinless sacrifice. And Jesus rose again to give new life to all who would place their faith in him. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for humble people. Would you close with me in prayer as we consider these truths together? Father, you sent Jesus to die in the sinner's place. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't looking for you. We weren't favorable toward you. We hated you. Yet in the fullness of time, in your great Love for your people, you sent Jesus to die and reconcile us to you. Seal that truth in the hearts of the people that need to hear it in this moment today. And Father, you've sent your church to proclaim the gospel without fear and without compromise. Minister to our fear today. 
Remind us that you're sovereign. Remind us that you're good. To those of us who were tempted to compromise the gospel or compromise our discipleship, there's no room for that in your kingdom. You call us to radical obedience and sacrificial discipleship. Give us the resolve to proclaim the gospel faithfully and truly. Thank you for blessing us with an eternal reward in doing so. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.